It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. He's earned decades of Wall Street success, a lifelong student of the market who learned to navigate the world of finance with unshaking confidence, an underdog who achieved the American dream. Now the Fox Business host is sharing all his investing wisdom with you on Charles Payne's Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Charles Payne's Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast. I'm Taylor Riggs, co-anchor of The Big Money Show on Fox Business. Today, I'm so excited that my friend and our very own Making Money host and Wall Street expert is here to talk about navigating all the choppy waters of a stock market during an election year. It is Charles Payne. He knows this topic pretty well. He's written multiple books on investing. He gives you financial news on TV. And now in this podcast and his town hall on January 18th, he's going to be giving you the confidence to invest in 2024 and let you know what kind of economic prosperity the rest of this decade may have in store for Americans. Charles Payne, I would say it's great to see you, but I think I should be thanking you for letting me back on your podcast. <laughs> well, it's always great to see you, no matter what, uh, how we uh, try to articulate it. Listen, um, it, it's, it, it is, well, you know, I got to tell you, I've watched you for years. So I know your enthusiasm, uh, A, for the markets, but B, for sharing what you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is going to be one of those years um, yeah. that uh, it's not, this is one of these years It's not just about this year. All right, the consequences of what happens this year. Uh, particularly with our election, are going to be felt for many, many years. In fact, one of the key themes in my new book, Unbreakable Investor, is the Roaring Twenties, the Roaring Twenty Twenties. And so, you know, I put, I go through all of these parallels of what was the same about the 1920s that are right now perhaps the same. And, and first of all, some of the historical things are just uncanny. Right? You were coming out of World War One. We yep. had the War on Terror. They had the Spanish flu. We had COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, you had uh, uh, really a lot of uh, big-time taxes. Uh, you just had the Federal Reserve uh, just come into being. We had a great recession. It was short, but it was huge. It was the biggest recession since before before the Great Depression uh, of the century. And, and all of these things were there. But you also had the opportunity for this nation to blossom. And it did. We we saw where the automobile uh, went from something that mostly just rich folks had to, I think, I think by 1930, there were like 25, 25, 30 million of them out there. Well, you're a car guy, so you would know. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, thir- the 1920s, that decade saw the greatest expansion of uh, life expectancy in this country, mm-hmm. that decade. Uh, we saw so many things, and we're on the cusp of all of that right now. But the linchpin, the linchpin was electing Harding initially, mm-hmm. and then him being replaced by Calvin Coolidge. And I want to sort of parlay that era that you describe into what we have today, because I remember coming out of COVID, people were joking and calling it the Roaring Twenties, because you had this massive lockdown, and then you get revenge spending, revenge going out, revenge traveling, people so mad that they were locked up that now they were just spending like crazy. Fold that into what we can see. Let's get to elections later. But 
sort of big picture into the market, the consumer, where people are right now in that revenge spending, that roaring 20s of really getting their lives back? Right. That part is, is um, in many ways, a, a backfiring. Uh, the spending should be a, as a consequence of achievement, not the consequence of government pouring trillions of dollars into an economy. Uh, and, and, and it has backfired. I mean, this is why we had a spike in inflation to 40-year levels. We did not need that last tranche of money. We did not need $2 trillion to fight COVID when we already had the vaccine. COVID cases were retreating, and people could see that we were going to be okay. We did not need $2 trillion for, for the economy when household balance sheets coming into that year were the best ever, when corporate balance sheets coming into that year were the best ever. Yep. So, you know, we, we can't, we've come a long way from a chicken in every pot. <laughs> I mean, you know, politicians back in the day were like, whoa, you're giving out trillions? We used to just hand out a chicken here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part wasn't the Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties was achievement that led to shared prosperity. Two different things. Now, you do have politicians, and they use the term shared prosperity. Usually it's used as a derogatory term where, hey, let us go in, take from the rich— the corporations and all those other greedy people will take it from them and we'll split it amongst the, the masses. The only problem is, you know, we didn't even thought that would work. It never would because somewhere along the line, if they take a trillion from the rich, somehow the masses only get $100 billion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What happened to the middle stuff? Uh, but what really, 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 really is happening and what continues to happen is that we are actually giving to the rich. Now, you hear the, 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 the jargon about taxes and all of these things and those greedy SOBs. Uh, but all of those programs, uh, and particularly this last tranche that I keep referring to, that it was $1.9 trillion, We're rounding up to $2 trillion. All of that money is going to end up in the pockets of the top 1%. Mm-hmm. Because to your point, we are a consumer-driven economy. So uh, a propensity to consume, the bottom 40%, as soon as they get in windfall, they spend it. And then, then they, not only do they spend it, if you give someone a thousand bucks, they're going to go to the mall and spend twelve hundred bucks. Yep. And so, it, it was it really a gift of where we set up because the ultimate beneficiaries are going to be the one percent, also known as the top political donors. And that top percent are actually the ones when, if they're given money, they save it. They're not spending. But the no way, one the gives lower. them money. No one gives. They've earned money and they've yeah. created businesses and they've created opportunities. Yeah, but they do save, although. What's carried us here recently and a lot of the late, the second half of 2023, uh, and everyone was talking to your point about revenge spending and traveling and FOMO and, you know, fear of missing out and YOLO, you only live once, all of those fun, cool acronyms that uh, apply to young millennials. Uh, Initially, that's what what you saw, but what really carried us through uh, was actually FOMO for 65 and up. Because that's where, to your point, those are the ones who people actually saved a lot of money. And those are people that just sort of had their own little epiphany. That's why shares of Carnival Cruise Line were up over 100% last year. And for even those who weren't necessarily very wealthy, we had that cost of living adjustment last year. Yeah. It was one of the biggest ever. Mm-hmm. So they got a windfall. They got a bonus, and they went out and they spent it, and they're going to restaurants. They're going on trips and those kind of things. So it's, it's kind of groovy in that sense. But what I'm looking for, though, in terms of a real long-term, decade-long or more, is sort of a more um, – Getting back to the ethos of who we are as a nation, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, a sort of can-do society. And that some of that started coming out of COVID. Yeah. Remember, we ran out of, out of preservative jars. People wanted to learn how to preserve food. 
People wanted to learn everything. They didn't. They were so afraid of ever having to rely because if you pick up the phone and you can't get someone to come to your house and fix something that maybe would take you 10 minutes to learn, that's why things like TikTok videos went crazy and all of those things. Americans were determined never to be this vulnerable again. And, of course, the same thing was applied to the stock market. I want to talk about the stock market. I think one of the great things that came out of COVID that is different from the parallel that you're making to the 1920s is this sort of, and I use this word lightly, the democratization of finance, where individual investors felt like they could get into the market and win and be a part of the game, not have the game rigged against them. We're in an election year. How do these individuals who are in the market, maybe for the first time, thinking about a playbook for an election year? Because history maybe tells us usually election years aren't so bad for the market. What are you thinking? There's several things. Um, you're right. I mean, in the 1920s, it, the stock market was off off limits, mostly to regular folks, right? I mean, that only began in earnest in the 1970s. Charles Schwab uh, sort of uh, was a pioneer there. The reason I wrote this book, Unbreakable Investor, as a as a companion piece to Unstoppable Prosperity, is because all of these people got into the market and it was going straight up, and you were hearing folks saying stocks never go down. You can throw a dart. I've been through this before. It was sort of parallel to what I saw in the late 1990s. Mm -hmm. I'd get in a cab in New York City, and at stoplights, I would see the cab driver putting trades on. Uh And everyone thought they were going to own their own island. I remember buying magazines. You know, they would have islands in there. This is only $3 million, you know. (laughs) And everyone was pricing it out. Everyone was going to retire at 50. It was just that sort of overall feeling of, 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 of euphoria. And so... We were building toward that, and then, of course, the market went down. It went down big. Not only the stock market, but the bond market. Rarely, they usually offset each other. Rarely do you have a 60-40 portfolio fall apart. It might have been the second worst year ever. So whatever you invested in got hammered, mm-hmm. crushed. Um, and so my my fear, because I've seen it a million times, when people come into the market, whatever brings them in, they usually make the same mistakes. They buy one stock at a time. They watch what it does, and I don't care what they buy. If they pay ten bucks for it, Taylor, this stock can go to five hundred dollars a share. They're not going to sell it. They keep thinking it's going to go up. The psychology it, makes it harder <laughs> to sell, right? But if they buy it at ten bucks and it goes to five, they take the loss and say, "I'll never do it again." How do you prevent them from not doing that? Well, the psychology to stay invested. You know, I, that's that's why I I write these books and I write every single day and I implore them and I do this on the show. It's just. It's a never-ending job because it's human. It's human. Uh, first of all, to your point, it's psychology. It's human. It's not something that's necessarily bad or good. You know, it's part fight or, a fight or flight kind of thing. You know, it's part of uh, psychology 101. Uh, and, you know, and the best way, though, ultimately to not do those sort of things is to know what you own, mm-hmm. why you own it, mm-hmm. uh, why did you buy it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Again, I, there's some people who say that you want to be a trader. Like, you know, you want to trade stocks, you buy it at 10 bucks, and it goes to 11 you sell it, and you're happy, good. That means if it goes to 10 you buy it at 10 and it goes to 9 you should at least sell it. You, all, you never want more than a one-on-one, one-to-one uh, risk-reward ratio. I prefer a two-to-one. You know, like I prefer to sell it at 12, but I'll, and I'll, uh, as a profit, take a loss at nine. Uh, you know, that's, that's discipline. It's hard to have discipline out the gate. Uh, a lot of it comes with licking your wounds. A lot of it comes, you can read about it. You can study it. But being in there is a whole lot different, obviously. I remember years ago, years ago, 
I said, okay, I'm going to start playing golf, right? So I got me some clubs, and I would put like three clubs in my backpack, and I would ride my bike a few towns over. So I got my cardio in. I would go to the ranch, and I mean, I was killing it. I mean, I was, I was like, oh, man, I'm better than Tiger. And went down, some buddies went down to South Carolina, a Hilton Head. Uh-huh. Oh, my God, it was so embarrassing. It was so embarrassing. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it's – I only played okay – after I was completely exhausted because uh-huh. I was trying to kill it and everything. But the point is being in the game is a whole lot different than practice, right? So um, there are a lot of things you can do that I try to do. Uh, I think ultimately, though, when people do this on their own, the key focus should be uh, sort of knowledge. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, people sort of get intimidated. Well, it sounds like a lot of work. It's not a lot of work. It's not a lot of work. I see people put a whole lot more effort into, like, fantasy football and things like that. Well so. said. Yeah, so Go Niners. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to talk about yeah. putting in the work because um, you've alluded to the elections coming up and the way that if we think about the Roaring Twenties for us this time around relative to the 1920s, a lot of that hinges on getting back to our roots as Americans. Larry Kudlow, a good friend of ours, always says that it's about low regulation, more drilling, lower taxes. What does getting back to our roots look like to you? It's the government saying, I believe in you. And I'm going to make it easier for you to take control of your destiny. Uh, And so uh, it it does mean fewer regulations, certainly onerous regulations, uh, less taxes, uh, you know, because that it doesn't create jobs. You know, it, it hurts prosperity. Uh, and I think it also there's also a sort of a cheerleader aspect of it too. That's it's hard to gauge, it's hard to pinpoint, but it's so critical. Uh, you know, if you think of the president of the United States as the CEO of America, right? In this case, CEO would be chief excitement officer. It shouldn't be woe is me, we're the worst country in the world. Let's go around and bow our heads to everyone and apologize. It should be chief excitement officer. The day I win, I put on my the pom poms and say we're going to kill it, mm-hmm. we're going to crush it. Let's you know. So I saw that, uh, and by the way, this is why, and I'm, talk, I'm going to talk about this in a town hall, but this is another reason why it's so interesting with um, these, these uh, reports that show you how well the market does under different administrations, because they all begin on Inauguration Day. Mm-hmm. That's completely wrong. Mm-hmm. At the very least, you begin on Election Day. Bingo. Right, because, for instance, when President Trump was elected, that month, that November, yep. uh, you should have seen, like, the National Federation of Independent Businesses, the first half and second half surveys, the National Association of Home Builders, their survey. You should have seen the changes that happened instantaneously. In anticipation of. Right. President Obama was elected. The market crashed between his election and his inauguration. Ironically, it made his stats look better. Because if we were rebounding from such an oversold position that, you know, inauguration day, it was like, you know, we were going to, didn't matter who we elected, we were over, the market was oversold. Now, some of that was out of, out of its control. We were going through the financial crisis. But the, there, was an, there was this sort of uh, angst uh, amongst the market in the market that maybe he wasn't the man for the job. So uh, I think bringing the chief excitement officer is so critical I want the president of the United States telling me I can do it and he'll get out of my way. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. You're right. Get the government out of the way so that you can flourish. 
I want to talk about something else that's been sort of in people's way this year. And you've alluded to it about sort of this DEI, the woke backlash. People feel like maybe some of these big institutions with Harvard, for example, coming in, telling them what to think instead of providing them with an education on critical thinking skills, giving you the tools, let me teach you how to fish, versus just giving you the fish. Are you starting to see that tide turn? There's no doubt it's turning, and I think there's two. it's a two-pronged issue. I think there's some folks out there who have sincerely wanted to do something, right, to, um, to make up for uh, particularly racism. I think some people have been, were really sincere about that. Um, uh, you know, listen, I, I, I've been working on Wall Street for a long time, it's, I, and I travel. I give speeches, uh, 15 speeches a year. It's rare I've ever walked into any sort of place, a professional business, and there was more than 2% people there were black. Most of the times I walk in and I could be in a place with 200 workers all making six-figure incomes, and that one is a black person. So there are some people who say, okay, we got to find a way to fix it. I think it begins with education, quite frankly. I think these watered-down educations that begin in kindergarten where someone graduating from New York City, a black kid, in 12th grade has a, you know, like a seventh-grade reading level. Yeah. You, it's hard to fix that. And so if a corporation says we're going to, you know, well, let's say a university says, well, we're going to put this kid with the eighth grade reading level above the other person who's reading at like an advanced college level just to try to rewrite the wrongs of yesteryear, so to speak. But even further than that, some of this stuff has just been simply hijacked, like Black Lives Matter. Yeah, Black Lives do matter. But when you when you put it into an organization and you're taking contributions and it's nothing but a political wing for progressives, uh, and a way to stifle off money for a handful of people, you set back any sort of cause that you you uh, are trying to front. So I think there's I think some of it was just honest misguided. It has been honest misguided, um, uh, you know, efforts by people saying that I want to do something, I want to help. And then I think some of it has been deliberate, um, it's a, a deliberate sort of anti-American, anti-capitalism uh, sort of thing. And so all of it's catching up. And the irony about the, the 1920s that that I've always loved, because I've studied the 1920s, and the one thing I thought was really so amazing that doesn't get enough press, because we always talk about the prosperity aspect, it was the spiritual revolution aspect of it, particularly with young women expressed in their clothes, in the way they dance. I mean, look at the music. Look at the videos. Watch a video. I mean, golly, they're all over the place, and they're doing the jumping, they're kicking. It's like we're, they're embracing life. They're embracing freedom. They're embracing individuality. And that's, the again, back to the ethos of who we are. You know, in Europe, there was no individuality. If you were mm-hmm. born to a cobbler, you're going to be a cobbler. And if you were born in the, in the lower stratus, you're going to be in the lower. That was your, your fate was decided at birth, at birth. And so the 1920s had a spiritual aspect to it that's coming back, and I think it's coming back in a form of a pushback against wokeism. And, 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 and listen, I think Americans, I, I know Americans want to be, do the right thing. I know 99% of Americans want to do the right thing. And they're tired of being told who they are when they don't think that's who they are. Uh, and and it kind of impedes them from even doing the right thing. You know, you could discourage people mm-hmm. uh, at some point. So you I, mentioned, I see a correlation. You mentioned young women. Are we allowed to share your secret news? <laughs> or are we going to wait? <laughs> we got to wait. We got to tease them. Okay. 
So everyone's going to have to watch your show, yes, your town, the town hall, hall, to get a wonderful tease that Charles Payne just gave me off air seconds before we went on this podcast. So I won't blow his cover. Thank you. We'll uh, we'll wait for that. Parlay then into what you were talking about, sort of pushing back on some of the woke culture into investing, because this was a time when you had a lot of young middle-class people emerge into wealth and want to choose their investments based on what they believe. Right. Maybe I don't want to invest in firearms. Maybe I don't want to invest in oil as their individual way of pushing back. Right. 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 How are you sort of seeing then? Is that still happening or are you starting to see some people make individual decisions? That's a fantastic question because it's being promoted as still happening but I don't think it's still happening. Now, listen, it's easier to blow an inheritance and, and, and trying to do the so-called right thing. Yeah. And I don't, I don't push back against anyone. Listen, you know, I, I, I never bought a liquor company stock. Um, I have bought defense contractors. Um, but I think there's a difference, right? When you start to buy, if you make an investment is designed to make money ultimately. And I think what happened, particularly with this ESG movement, is that... The onus is being removed from profits, right? And they're trying to and they're trying to do a different scale. Uh, so you know how you know the, the, it's not shareholders anymore; it's stakeholders. Yeah. And stakeholders include the park across the street. You know, just just I don't know whatever they want it to be. There's no clear cut answer for it. And last year, nothing performed worse than ESG stuff. Right. Nothing. Nothing. Well, in Charles, I have a stock called Enphase. I lost like sixty percent of my money. I just put it on a shelf. You know, uh, electric vehicle stocks crushed, mm-hmm. hammered. Nothing performed worse than the, those stocks. So, if you're going to work hard for your money and pour down something that's not going to return, actually lose it, that doesn't make sense. No matter how 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 well meaning you might be, or you think you know your money might be, uh, it's it's a it's People learn quickly. It's a huge mistake. We're coming up on the end of our time for this podcast. Any final thoughts that you want to get in here? Yeah, you know, we were talking about investing now versus the 1920s. Well, 1920s, it was really closed off. But we did see a lot of shared prosperity. For instance, the automobile went from something that only rich people had. I think 25, 30 million people had them at the end of the 1920s. The reason this is so important is because people do have the opportunity now. And 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 particularly in America, I'm going to talk about some things in a town hall about what makes America's market so unique. Just to put it in perspective, in the UK, I think less than 10% of people there invest. Mm. I mean, just think about what a gift it is. But for a lot of people, it's not working. I'll give you an example. The average 401k retirement account in third quarter 2018 was worth $106,500. In the third quarter of last year, you know what it was worth? One hundred seven thousand. Oh, seven hundred. Yeah. That's not acceptable. It went up twelve hundred bucks in five years. And inflation's probably gone up more than that, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the problem. Well, I mean, these are just terrible results. Yes, these are terrible results. So, I believe that people have to. I'm not saying keep your 401k, but let's take it a step further. There should be a large portion of your of your investing that you control, so that you can get better returns than this, or at least attempt to. If that isn't a pitch to watch your show and your town hall and listen to your podcast, I don't know what is. I am invested in watching you, Charles Payne. Um, So unfortunately, I have to say that that's it from my discussion here. But 
We did get the chance to touch on a lot of topics, and hopefully now listeners are even more confident about investing during an election year, but really more so beyond that. Armed with the proper knowledge and determination, everyone can start becoming unbreakable and get in the investing game. If listeners like this discussion, they're definitely going to want to catch Charles Town Hall. It's all happening here at the Fox Business Channel, Thursday, January 18th, 2 p.m. Eastern. And now I get to say, Charles Payne, thanks for having me back on your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's such an honor to have you. I appreciate it. I'm glad to see you. You've been listening to the Charles Payne's Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to this series and don't forget to rate and review. And keep listening so I can help put you on the path to unstoppable prosperity now. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.